they've been thinking about how what it means to be the church and what it means to um, be a Christian in a secular, urban, uh, you know, environment that puts a lot of pressure on them, puts a lot of pressure on the church for a very long time. And as such, I think they have a lot to teach us here as we look ahead and see um, just the dismantling of, you know, the power of uh, Christianity in the West and Christendom. And we, uh, yeah, we have a lot to learn. Welcome to the podcast of the Kirby Lang Centre for Public Theology in Cambridge. Public theology is about how the very good news of Jesus relates to all of life. Our podcast is titled Christianity for the Everyday, dispatches from and for our daily lives. We like to quote Gerard Manley Hopkins' statement that Christ plays in 10,000 places. In our podcast, we aim to find those myriad ways in which Christ plays in our lives so that we can play alongside him. Join our team and invited guests as we explore Christianity and the everyday, from the most mundane aspects of our lives with their hidden glory to geopolitical issues that impact upon them. Thank you for giving Christianity for the Everyday a listen. Uh, we want to remind you that Christianity for the Everyday is a podcast of the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology in Cambridge. Please, if you like the podcast, please go ahead and give us a review. To learn more about our work and other resources, you could head to kirbylangcenter.co.uk and um, you could check out the resources there and sign up for our email list. Super excited today. We got a we've got a powerhouse roundtable. I'm joined by, as usual, Bruce Ashford. Hello, Bruce. Looking ripped. There's the biceps, looking good. And then we've got uh, joining us today, David Koisis, who is author of the already modern classic. Sorry if I'm going to make you blush, but the already <laughs> modern classic. Go to political <laughs> visions and illusions. Thank you for jumping in, David. Certainly happy to be here. So um, I'm just going to jump into this because we got we got a lot to cover. Um, we're talking with Hannah Nation today, who I believe is in Pennsylvania. Is that where you are, sister? Yeah, I'm in Pittsburgh. Okay, she's in Pittsburgh. Thank you. We want to hear about your like you. We want to hear about your story, your love for the Christians of China. We want to talk about the book Faithful Faithful Disobedience and, and hear the voices of the house church movement movement. And we want to hear for sure about, about Pastor Wang Yi, who is still in prison serving out his nine-year sentence of for the crime of, quote, subversion of the state. But before we do any of that, would you please share with these listeners why Christianity in China and, and just Christians and their insights, their experience are something that we would that we would actually do well to pay attention to and not just merely skip this episode for a, a quote, quote, more practical, uh, like a practical subject, like why, why, why would we do well to hear what's going on? Is it, is it mere solidarity or is there more to it? 
Yeah, I'd love to answer that question. Well, I think, you know, for a lot of people, China feels very far away. Um, it is very far away. <laughs> it's geographically very far away. Um, and there are a lot of cultural differences, um, many, many very long-standing historical differences between us in the Western world and our brothers and sisters in China. But, you know, I think um, as we move into the 21st century, we probably have a lot more in common with uh, especially our contemporary house church brothers and sisters than we might realize. Um, most of them live in very large cities, centers. Um, most of the house churches have moved from China's more rural settings into the cities, um, just as China's population has moved. And, um, you know, China's cities are, you know, they're very similar to our cities in a lot of ways. Um, they're large, they're very secular, um, they're very digital, and uh, all of the things that kind of encompass our lives today, um, education, um, advancement, um, making money, just capital, all of these things are things that we have in common with them. And so even though there are a lot of differences, we actually have quite a lot in common with our brothers and sisters um, halfway around the world. I always say, you know, if you take people from the world's urban centers, on each different continent, they probably will have more in similar with each, or it's more in uh, similar with each other than if you take uh, someone from a city center in North America and someone from a rural place in North America. Sometimes our greatest cultural differences can be within our own cultural context in today's world. So. They've been thinking about how what it means to be the church and what it means to um, be a Christian in a secular, urban, uh, you know, environment that puts a lot of pressure on them, puts a lot of pressure on the church for a very long time. And as such, I think they have a lot to teach us here as we look ahead and see um, just the dismantling of, you know, the power of uh, Christianity in the West and. Christendom and we, uh, yeah, we have a lot to learn. So. Thank you, Hannah. Um, so, you know, one of the sort of dominant threads in this book, I think is that, uh, the pastors and authors see the strength of the Chinese church being in their reliance on the Holy Spirit's empowerment and reliance on spirit inspired scripture. And I think that's important for those of us in the West to hear, mm. um, Luther said something at one point, I'm going to misquote him. It won't be exactly right, but he said, you know, if you're, if you're faithful in every respect to what the Bible teaches, except that one point where the culture is pressing in, then you're not mm -hmm. being faithful. And the Western, um, church in, in the past 300 years has, um, there's this temptation at the place where culture is putting pressure to discard the view that scripture is infallible and inerrant. Mm -hmm. And when our churches have done that, we've lost, we have no bulwark. We have mm -hmm. no anchor. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that dependence on, on scripture and, and on the empowerment of the spirit rather than on like human ingenuity and mm -hmm. rational intellect and that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, a lot of that has to do with, I think, just the history of the house churches. Um, 
you know, they were really birthed in, um, uh, well, they were, they were birthed in the middle of the 20th century when just a lot of the um, fights over the idea of scripture and the inerrancy of scripture were taking place and they, and they weren't um, sheltered from that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think sometimes we can think, oh, you know, halfway around the world, the debates that the Western church are, is having, you know, maybe what doesn't affect them, but actually a lot of um, what caused the house church to be born under uh, the rise of the communist uh, powers in China um, really had to do over the fundamentals of the faith. And um, just that the, the whole 20th century uh, debate between um liberal understandings of scripture and of the faith and uh, essentially uh, a commitment (laughs) to scripture. And so um, the Chinese church has really for its its whole life just valued um, scripture and valued um, dependence on the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a really good essay. Um, it's, it's not written by Wang Yi. It's written by another house church leader. His name is, uh, Paul Pung. And he basically goes back and he looks at exactly this question of what sustains a church through hardship and, uh, persecution. And he basically says it's, it's understanding your union with Christ. And that only happens through the word and through a life of prayer, and so he looks at this legacy in the house church and their dependence on, um, on scripture and on the Holy Spirit throughout their life. And he kind of wants to argue, you know, this is fundamental to the identity of the house churches. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, they really have uh, held on to their love for scripture and their understanding of scripture as, uh, you know, just fundamental to their idea of the church. And that, I think that really, you know, spans, uh, the house churches there's, it's estimated that there are a hundred million Christians in China today. Um, so of course you're going to have a lot of theological perspectives, uh, within a group that large, but I do think, um, they tend to all in common, um, have a great appreciation for, for the word and for scripture. Amen. Hannah, uh, good to talk to you and good to have you with us. Um, Where does this interest of yours in China come from? Because I can I can see there's this passion in you. And and (laughs) as I've I've been looking through this book as well, you're very much invested in this. And where did that come from? You know, I I always have to say I I do truly think um, the Lord has just, I don't know, it, it, he has put it in my life. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I just continue with it. I did not at any point in my young adulthood think, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, it's not what I studied in undergrad, although I was a history major. So I have always had an appreciation for the big story. And um, I think, even in the early days of getting involved uh, with China, definitely was aware that uh, the next chapter of church history was really unfolding there. 
and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, but yeah, you know, look, people ask me this question and it's always a little hard to answer because there wasn't, um, you know, one thing that really compelled me, but I went, I first went in college, uh, to teach English. And I think, you know, it's, really hard to go to China and not be blown away by how many people are there mm -hmm. and the opportunity for the gospel there. Um, I had had no prior exposure to China um, before that, apart from, you know, kind of common things that you might have in the U.S., um, I, I remember watching big, big bird goes to China as a little kid and loving it, but, um, but yeah, I, I went kind of on a whim. Um, I taught English and I just, I loved it and I loved the people and, um, was really blown away by what I saw taking place there. And, um, yeah, I have just essentially followed the Lord's leading over the last 20 years yeah. <laughs> and, and stayed with it. So, yeah, yeah that's pretty, that's pretty good. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I I noticed some as I've been reading up on on Wang Yi. I'm actually writing a book right now uh, for University Press. It's, it's the working title is is um, Citizenship Without Illusions, and um, and Wang Yi uh, features in one of the chapters in, in my book. Uh, <laughs> so so it's a um, and I'm I'm impressed with the fact that uh, that he became a Christian less than 20 years ago what is it like 2004 2005 or something along those Correct. lines mm -hmm. and yet now he's suffering for the cause of christ and and i think many of us might have difficulty wrapping our heads around it. you know how can somebody who you know back in in 2003 could not have imagined that he'd be where he is now and, and would have seen no reason why this this could possibly happen to him how would somebody like that willingly um uh, accept the fate that's been dealt, dealt here? Mm, mm. Yeah. That's a great question. I, I, I wish he was here to answer that. Yes, I himself. do too. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little hard to, to speak to on behalf of someone yeah. else. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's, purely uncommon when you look at the history of Christianity for people to form very deep convictions very quickly, um, especially in the face of pressure and, um, you know, pressure from the culture or from authorities. You know, I think if, even if you go back to the early days of the church, um, you know, a lot of the stories of the earliest martyrs, um, these are not people who were, you know, uh, some of the church's greatest theologians, <laughs> um, but they um, they had a conviction and, and they were able to stand by it. And and I think it really essentially comes down to the question of, you know, is this real in your life? Um, have you encountered the risen savior? And if you have and you understand that, um, you know, he is reigning in power and glory today as truly as he will um, in the final coming of the kingdom, then, um, you know, obviously that that gives you great power, <laughs> great power in that moment um, to remain in your convictions. Yeah, thank you.
Thank you for that, Hannah. Um, you know, part one of the book is uh, uh, the most representative chapter, I think, is probably the 95 Theses mm -hmm. uh, Manifesto drafted by Yi and, and published by the church. And it uh, talks about the kingdom, God, kingdom of God as the guiding framework for the church's public theology. I think that's really important. Um, in our American context, I mean, I think we've got some folks who, on the one hand, the kingdom that seems to have captivated their heart is an earthly kingdom, uh, mm -hmm. the potential that the United States has to be a beacon. And that's both on the right and the left. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it takes different form. And then, you know, for other people, the, the kingdom, it seems in which they're putting their hope is the United Nations, European, mm -hmm. you know, confederation and, and so forth, that some sort of transnational entity is going to guide us and help, help us take a great leap forward morally. That's those things seem to be absolutely just absolutely not a temptation whatsoever mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. for the Chinese church. You talk about that a little bit, um, what that looks like, that they have got their hearts fixed exclusively in terms of kingdoms. Uh, their, their primary allegiance is exclusively toward Christ and his kingdom. Yeah. Well, part of what's helpful for understanding that I think is, is understanding a little bit of China's history and, and just even the social context that they live in. Um, you know, China is a very old country and it has a very long lasting identity and it has <clears throat> long had very much a belief in, um, and, and its role in the world, <laughs> you know, um, I think coming from the West, we obviously have a, a, a different perception of China, especially left over from the Cold War. Um, but, you know, there a lot of the narratives, I guess I would say, surrounding um, China and uh, China as a nation and, and that nation's role in this world is is really not that different from what you might hear discussed, uh, as you said, of the United States, left or right, um, and of bodies like the United Nations. Um, there's definitely very much a kind of salvific role given to um, the Chinese state and the Chinese identity and, uh, and a scatological role. Um, and, and that predates uh, the rise of communism in China, but also, I mean, um, communism itself is a very eschatological system and um, has a has an idea of the future and, and where we're going and how we're getting there. Um, so it's not really possible, I think, to be a Christian in China and have to think about how the gospel and how the, the church um, stands in opposition to these narratives that come from the state um, and these narratives that um, want to give us, you know, a, a meta narrative for life <laughs> um, and for history and for our world. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that everyone in the Chinese house churches has thought through these issues on the level that Wang Yi has. Um, but I do think that um, there's just a very clear understanding that um, by becoming a Christian and by becoming part of the church, that you are in some way taking on an identity 
that uh, does not fit nicely <laughs> um, or neatly with the nationalistic identities uh, that China, that the CCP wants to promote among its people. And so I think, you know, that, you know, going back to our, our first question of, you know, why, why listen to what the Chinese are saying? Again, there were very real differences. You know, we live in a democracy. Um, our, our education systems are very different from, from those in China. But nonetheless, I think um, we also struggle with uh, the, the big narratives that, that, uh, that are, are around us. And, and how do we as Christians, how do our identities as part of the kingdom of God understand these, these competing narratives um, surrounding who we are as a people, not just as individuals. I think that's one thing that the Chinese have thought through a lot more than we have is the corporate nature of that question. Um, how do we um, uh, exist in this kingdom of God that um, stands in opposition to these competing narratives and these competing definitions of identity uh, that surround us? And so I, I always, you know, add to that, the Chinese love China. The Chinese Christians I know all love China. They, they love their home. They love their people. They love their culture. They love being Chinese. Um, but I think very immediately upon conversion, they uh, have to ask themselves questions that we get to kind of live in a gray area of never answering <laughs> um, in the West. Uh, so, you know, I think um, we today uh, are being pressed on those questions more and more. Um, we're being asked as the church to kind of uh, more clearly disciple our people uh, in terms of, uh, you know, just where our ultimate allegiances lie and what gives us our ultimate identities. And um, yeah, it, it's always interesting to see how much clearer I think that is for the churches in China. Um, yeah, fr from the get-go, from, you know, it's kind of often very quick and quickly and early in their discipleship process that those questions are asked. Uh, um, uh, about 20 years ago, a man by the name of Philip Jenkins wrote a book called The Next Christendom, which I think is a, is a, a, a very important book. It's, I, have, I read the first edition. I think it's gone through at least two more editions since, since it, was, it was published. And, um, and, and one of the things that, that, that he said is that Christianity, you know, far from being a Western religion, you know, which, which into the 19th, 18th, 19th, and maybe into the 20th century was thought to be largely European and, and, and North American, um, that, that, that now the average Christian is, is living somewhere outside of the West. Mm -hmm. You know, possibly, you know, South uh, Sub-Saharan Africa was the one that he focused more on. But even as I read the book, I thought, you know, I wonder if China will one day be the, the, global, um, the, the global center of Christianity in mm. the 21st mm. and maybe the 22nd mm. century, mm. you know, and, mm. and, and it, it, I've always, I tell people, you know, that China has more Christians, probably twice as many Christians as there are human beings in Canada. Or, or, <laughs> you know, so that, that, that puts things in perspective because yeah. as, as, you know, in Hamilton, I, I've lived here for 36 years. I, I can't tell you the number of churches that have closed, you know, Anglican, Presbyterian, United churches that have, um, 
Uh, you know, the buildings have been sold off. They've been repurposed for other things. Some of them sadly have been torn down and so forth. And yet in China, it's just, it's exploding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, after, um, after the communists uh, took over in 1949, all of the missionaries were, were sent out. And I think those of us who, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not quite that old, but, but, but I remember the, that mm -hmm. era and, and thinking about, you know, what about what's happening in China? You know, are there, mm -hmm. are, mm -hmm. is the, the gospel growing? And yet, and then after Mao dies, then it's like, it just explodes. And, mm -hmm. and it's just, mm -hmm. it's just remarkable to see. And what do you think is fueled there? Is there, is there something in the, um, in the, I mean, the Holy Spirit? Yes. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate, what, ultimately what we can say, but is there something in the culture? Is there something in the, in mm -hmm. China's history that's predisposed mm -hmm. it towards the gospel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, ultimately, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And I would say, I think the just the fruit of just, you know, decades and of prayer and effort and labor um, by the many, many missionaries who laid down their lives to plant those seeds. Um, but yeah, I mean, you don't see... Uh, the wide acceptance of Christianity really take off until the removal of all Western missionaries and uh, wow. the beginning of, you know, essentially persecution and hardship. And so there's this really interesting question, right? And, and um, but, I, you know, I think... <sighs> This is such a great question. We could talk about this for a whole second hour. <laughs> so, um, and you should, if you want to dive into this question for an hour, you should have one of my coworkers yeah. on. Um, he's Chinese and he's written on this quite a lot. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, essentially, I think there are a couple of things. Um, first, uh, you know, China culturally um, underwent really a, a, a prolonged deconstruction of its values, <laughs> you could say, um, beginning really with the arrival of the imperial powers um, through the rising disillusionment with communism in the 1980s and, and Tiananmen Square. Um, Essentially, all of the cultural foundations for China were uprooted, dismantled, and you know deconstructed, to, to use a more popular term these days. Um, and so, you know, I think um, that is always going to be a very ripe time for preaching the gospel um, when people's, uh, you know, when people's sense of, of self, both individually and, and corporately is, has been dismantled. Yeah. Um, that's a really important and fruitful time for preaching the gospel. And so, um, you know, I, basically the, the Chinese church, uh, survived through the end of the 20th century and the cultural revolution. Um, and then it grew, you know, exponentially beginning in the 1980s when a lot of the harshest persecutions um, eased up. And, uh, you know, the, the Chinese talk about persecution as a time for ref refinement and purity of the church. 
it's a time when the church has to buckle down and really come to terms with what it believes and what it, it, its commitments are. And then times of, um, relative openness because persecution has never stopped in China, but times of relative ease are times for just boldly going out and proclaiming Christ, um, to your people. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, if you go back and you look at the history of the 20th century in China, um, and, and before that too, but particularly the 20th century, you just kind of systematically have this dismantling of, of one meta narrative after another. <laughs> you know, you have the abandonment of Confucianism and the yeah. older religions. You have the arrival of communism, and then communism essentially is proven to be lacking. Um, and then, and then you see even more recently, I think, um, a turn to materialism and capitalism, and and a hope that that would in turn be the answer to the country's problems. And that has also, I think, very much uh, been proven to be empty for a lot of people. And so, um, you know, the, you know, I, I don't know, you know, for some people. Uh, they're very aware of these things like, you know, Wang Yi and many of my coworkers and, and they're engaging on a very intellectual level on these matters. But I think, you know, for, for the average person in the streets, um, they just can look at their family and say, you know, in every generation, we have been let down in some way and there mm-hmm. has to be a better answer out there. Wow. Yeah. So well, if I, if I could just if I could just yes. a bit of a follow up, but I, you know, that deconstruction as you're talking about, you know, it, it strikes me that I wonder if there are parallels to what we're going through right now in the West in North America, mm-hmm. and I wonder mm-hmm. if maybe, you know, because it seems as though the the gospel or the numbers of people who believe it are are, are declining, but I wonder if we have become so deconstructed now, you know, the meta narratives have been have been shown. To be, to be false in, in, a, in a variety of ways. I wonder if this might be at some point in the future, maybe, you know, maybe after mm. I'm gone, but there will be uh, opportunities to re-sow the seeds of the gospel mm. in, in mm. what is newly fertile soil in mm. North America. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that same question a lot too. And yeah. I think, yeah. um, you know, deconstruction is always painful. It's not, you know, I, oh, I don't yeah. think it's a, it's, mm. it's a very painful thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, man, I, ho- I hope that we are bold in preaching the gospel in, in the same way that the Chinese have been bold. You know, they have, they have been very, very bold in preaching. And I think, um, yeah, we, we should learn from them and, and follow in their footpath and, you know, their footsteps and recognize that um, when people are in that space of recognizing that their systems have failed them and their their beliefs have failed them that that's the best time <laughs> to make uh, Christ known, oh, yeah. you know, Absolutely. and, um, to show Absolutely. them the, the emptiness of, of what they've been holding on to. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the perennial questions are really answered by, by, by God. You know, we were, what's the quote? Like our hearts are restless, you know, until mm. we rest in God or God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just true for everyone We're, we are wired. We were built for him, you know, as Craig says, like to live in, live in the grain with the world. And so we all have these 
itches that need to be scratched that only the gospel does. Just want to remind the listener that we're talking with Hannah Nation, who is an, an editor of a editor of a book called Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. And then I'm a pretty rank and file guy, and I'm thinking, okay, what do I think when I think of China? I think um, really old, like really old, <laughs> cool. Um, I think of like Hudson Taylor and his make, yep. and how he just like was became a Chinese guy. I just love that. I think of, of course, communism. I think of the great duck that they have there in, in <laughs> Beijing and Peking. And I think in, Again, and, Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sadly, I, I feel like I used to hear more about persecution. Maybe, maybe I feel like I haven't heard it heard as much the last three to four years now that I think about it. And is that because it's an old story now and it's not interesting and new or is it, has it, has it lifted a little bit? And so my question that, that I'm coupling with that is, um, I guess, actually, I guess there's two different questions. Sorry, I'm doing two in one. What are the rank and file Chinese, um, Christians, what are they concerned with right now? Are they concerned? Are they on survival mode? Like the, like Christianity, the first 200 years. And then after that, they were developing the Trinity. And then, and now in America, we could talk about the implications of faith and art. Like are, are the Chinese people talking about the implications of their faith as, and the social ills of you know, Instagram and TikTok, or are they only on survival mode? What, what are some of these resources that you've read and that you are pushing out to us, mm. they are, this is really helpful for us. Mm, 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 mm. I love that question. That's, I think you're the first person to ask that question. Um, wow. Yeah. So they are not just in survival. Well, okay. <laughs> As with everything in China, it's complicated. <laughs> um, I would say they are not just in survival mode. That being said, um, this has the last couple of years have actually been a really hard spell for the Chinese house church Christians. One, because in 2018, new religious regulations were put into effect, and those have really opened up a whole new era of active persecution against the church. Um, Xi Jinping is, uh, you know there is a legacy of persecution, um, that he'll leave behind. Um, the second thing though, has been COVID. Um, the COVID zero policy was, I mean, COVID zero was incredibly hard for everyone in China, not just the Christians. Um, it was very harsh. It was very severe. And a lot of the churches have been in survival mode, along with the rest of China <laughs> due mm. to the COVID zero policy. Mm. So, you know, most immediately, yeah, they, they have been um, enduring some very specific hardships. That being said, um, in general, I wouldn't say that persecution is at the forefront of their minds mm. um, or the realities of their church. Um, you know, as, as I said, their lives are not entirely dissimilar from our lives. You know, I, so, wow. you know, I'm, I live in a city, I'm a young mom. I have two young kids, you know, the things that 
I'm worried about on a daily basis are, you know, how my kids doing in school, (laughs) Um, whether my, you know, siblings are, you know, doing okay in their jobs, Mm. Um, you know, how our church can be an effective witness in a city that more or less just is kind of bored by Christianity and not super (laughs) interested in it, you know? And that I would say exemplifies actually like the vast majority of Christian experiences Mm -hmm. in China. They definitely experience persecution, but it's not like every church is actively being persecuted every, you know, 52 weeks out, 52 Sundays out of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sporadic and it tends to be uh, somewhat predictable based on local politics and economics. Um, And even those churches which are under active persecution often can kind of come to a new normal and continue to survive and exist, uh, you know, and withstand it ongoing, you know, mm-hmm. situations like Wang Yi's church, where there was essentially just a massive, large scale orchestrated attack on the church and, you know, a very systematic dismantling of the existence and life of the church that happens, but it's rare. It, it's not mm-hmm. the norm. Most persecution in China is much more boring and mundane. And it's kind of like a slow drip <laughs> of harassment. Wow. But that's to say it that, you know, there, there are a lot of Christians in China engaging all sorts of different topics. Um, mm. I know Christian artists who are creating beautiful art in China um, and churches that are very supportive of that and very, you know, active in, in those things. Um, I know, you know, many uh, Christians in China who are engaging in, you know, kind of a, a new level of scholarship, um, wanting to create uh, new things. I, I just heard of the first, what, what will be the first house church theological academic journal um, that they are trying to start. They just came out with a first edition. Awesome. Um, I'm, I'm sure they have a lot of growth ahead of them and, and refinement and finessing, but you know, they, they are making culture as they go. And, uh, I think one of the differences between the house churches in China today and, and the early church is that they do stand on 2000 years of church history, you Mm -hmm. know, um, and they know that and, and they are very keen to engage church history. They're very keen to engage, um, the global church and be a part of it. Mm. One of their greatest sorrows usually is that, is that they are somewhat isolated from the global church mm-hmm. and um, they deeply desire to be better, uh, better engaged with the churches outside of China. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, as we were talking, you know, a moment ago, well, just then you were talking about the theological journal that's been started and some movements in the arts and so forth. It reminded me there were several different places in Pastor Yi's essays or uh, chapters where he uh, drew upon the salt and light metaphor. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, we all know that salt for ancient people was a preservative, a very important one. They didn't have refrigerators and freezers and it was a seasoning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that 
but the whole point is that salt couldn't be effective in either of those roles if it didn't remain pure if you know so mm -hmm. if you get salt mixed with mud it doesn't do much good to rub that into a ribeye you've got a useless ribeye to grill if it's got mud and salt mixed in and so forth and 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 i feel like you know here in the west so often the uh, salt has become mixed trampled underfoot and uh it seems not to be happening in the Chinese church, anywhere near to the extent that it does here. You talk a little bit, I mean, you've already, we've already addressed this theme in a number of different ways. So maybe it's just a brief answer, but the salt and light metaphor, mm. um, what, what, what is its meaning to you in that uh, context? Mm, mm. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you what they say, <laughs> which is that uh, they, they pretty much immediately point to persecution as what keeps the salt salty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, per personally, I, I wrestle with that um, because I think it invites the question of, you know, is persecution necessary for the salt to remain salty? Um, and that's a whole, you know, that's a whole thought you can chase down and, and debate. Um, but they look at their history and they look at the history of the churches in China and they, they very much just straight up say that, um, persecution is what, uh, keeps the church pure. Mm. And, um, I think they, they are beginning to build a very robust theology of suffering mm -hmm. and the role of suffering in the life of the Christian and the life of the church. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate uh, about the writings coming out from China is uh, the way that they're able to talk about persecution in the greater context of suffering. Um, I think often in the Western world, our discussions of persecution have really fallen more in our discussion of, of rights and um you know, we tend to keep conversations about, you know, cancer diagnoses and persecution pretty far apart from each other. <laughs> There's not a lot of overlap in our theology regarding those two topics. Um, but in China, actually, it's all very mixed together. Um, they really have not uh, developed their theology of persecution outside of their, their greater and broader theology of the call to suffer with Christ and what that means in many aspects of life, not just persecution by the state. And so um, I think that's a really healthy perspective when thinking about persecution um, that, you know, it's not something set out and apart from the just broader call to bear our cross. And the, the Chinese use the language of walking the way of the cross and um, this is, you hear them reference this all the time. And um, I, I, I just, I love it. It's not unique to them, but I think they, they have a particular love for that language. And it's, it's very much part of their DNA. And um, I think it's, it's, it's been very helpful for me, even just in my own life of thinking of, you know, revisiting what scripture really says about our call to suffer with Christ and um, how that's a call for all Christians and all disciples and not just those who face persecution. 
You know, here in the States, um, and in, I guess in, in some of the European countries, there might be some of this phenomenon too, but uh, there's this, uh, Christianity used to have the, the high ground, so mm, to speak, mm. socially and culturally, mm-hmm. yep. and in all, in all of these, these countries, and suddenly does not, it's been displaced from the default position, is now considered implausible and even reprehensible. And so one of the reactions that we see, especially here in the, in the States, is uh, resentment and mm-hmm, anger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's understandable, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're elite cultural actors and activists have conspired to absolutely overthrow not just the Christian influence, but to overturn God's creation design. And so a lot of times the protests take the form of, if not violence, uh, not, not physical violence, mm-hmm. but like verbal violence mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just, just, uh, explosive anger. Mm-hmm. But what we see, and I'm guessing a, a part, part, part of this is just the purity of the, the of the, the Chinese church. And then part of it may just be that there's not this resentment, uh, mm. you know, that the Chinese government, so, and then that relates me to part three, where, where, where their response is what they call nonviolent non-obedience mm-hmm, often. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a, from what I've experienced of it, there's a more of a, instead of anger and resentment, there's um, determination and joy, mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. different feel, for, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm, is that, is that mm-hmm. a good way to look at it or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think you know, I, I don't think they're superhuman. I don't think they aren't tempted with the same spirit of resentment that we are tempted with. Um, but I think that, yeah, they are demonstrating a posture towards those, you know, which seek them harm, um, that we really need to learn from. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, there are two key things that come to my mind, which you very much find in Wang Yi's writing, but it's echoed throughout so many of the other writings that I've worked with. Um, the first is a recognition that um, hostility against Christianity is simply an opportunity for an apologetic moment, you know, that, um, you know, they constantly are talking about when you are, you know, taken in front of the magistrates, um, that is the time for that you get to preach the gospel <laughs> to those in power above you. Um, they really view these things as times when um, you're able to preach the gospel to those that you wouldn't normally be able to preach it to, um, really meaning essentially those above you and those below you, because generally speaking, they, you know, have opportunities to, um, speak of Christ and the kingdom and the gospel to the governing authorities over them, which are, uh, you know, seeking them harm. But then often, you know, they're in jail with people who are very low in the social realities of China, um, they're usually jailed with drug dealers and thieves and prostitutes. And all of their testimonies from their time in jail talk about actively seeking to share the gospel um, with these people, especially because they know 
they don't usually interact with people of this social class. And so this is an opportunity for the church to actually get to preach the gospel to those who wouldn't normally hear it. So I think that's one thing that is really um, driving their response and um, keeping them from a spirit of bitterness. But I think the other thing, and this is maybe even more important, um, they all very much talk about persecution as a time for um, Christians themselves to repent. And I find that to be incredibly challenging. I find that to be directly in contradiction <laughs> with most of what the Western world thinks uh, it should do when it's attacked or the Western church when it's attacked. But I think that um, they write a lot about how when you are being attacked, it's a time for you to examine your own heart and examine your own idols and repent of the idols that you yourself um, have worshipped. And again, I mean, this gets back to the, all the conversations about allegiance and your ultimate love, right? That um, even though we're talking about persecution by the state um, or the cultural authorities or the cultural elites, you know, they're saying we'll respond by repenting of the idols that you yourself have created. Wow. Um in those moments. And so there are a lot of testimonies of pastors who talk about using the uh, ride to the police station um, to repent of their own idols before they face the authorities before them. And I think, you know, ultimately it comes down to your understanding of God's grace in your life. You know, if you don't have a heart that is tender and its understanding of, of God's grace to you, then it will be very easy to become better when you're under attack. But when the gospel is alive and, uh, you know, you have a, a real understanding of God's grace to you personally and, and to the church, um, it enables you to respond in a way that's completely abnormal for a human <laughs> to respond in those situations. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can talk about it in terms of, you know, the ride to the police car, you know, the, the, the ride in the police car on the way to the station in China. But I also, you know, I think a lot about our context here in America and, you know, we are not being taken away, uh, in the back of police cars to stations, but we have many situations um, where we are faced with the hostility or the derision of, of those who are not in the faith. And I think we have to ask ourselves if we are responding similarly um, or if we are, you know, as Bruce said, um, responding in a spirit of bitterness and, and attack. Thank you very much, Hannah. Um, can, can, I, I, everything that I've read about the, of the Chinese church, I, I find very inspirational. And I think that there's a lot that we in the West can learn from, uh, from what our brothers and sisters are, are going through um, in China. Uh, but I wanted to ask about, about, about the future, about, about the way that the Chinese Christians themselves face the future. Do they have a global mission? I mean, when, mm. they, when, when, they, when they look at the world, you know, they, they see not just not just their own country, but they're, they're, 
the, the place of their own country as a global actor? Do they, do they, do mm. they, do they have a burden for the rest of the world? Mm. Mm. Yes. And it's growing. I think they have that burden. It's still young. Um, I, I, there's definitely interest uh, across all the various house church networks and, you know, all of their different theological persuasions. I think there is a growing interest in uh, global engagement and global service. I think they are still very young and knowing what that looks like and how to do it. Um, but I think, I think it'll be inevitable. <laughs> you know, I think um, in some ways that will happen simply by the fact of, you know, China as a state's involvement in the world. And, um, you know, I, I think on the one hand, the church has moved forward through missional movements, but on the other hand, you know, it has always moved forward simply based on the movement of people and, uh, you know, the, the historical and socioeconomic changes that have taken place in our world, you know, and, and how the church moves with those, those changing realities. So I think to the extent, you know, that looking forward, we, we see that China will have uh, increasing and ongoing role in our world. Um, you know, we can absolutely anticipate that the Chinese church will play a role in that as well. And so I think it's, you know, very important to come alongside them and to support them and aid them in that and to encourage them to, to think carefully about how that happens and what that looks like. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, it, you, he, there's, you know, I, I, one of my coworkers was sending me something recently about a, a Chinese seminary opening up in Rome, you know, and, and, you know, and I've had conversations with um, Rwandan brothers who have talked about the Chinese in their cities and trying to figure out how to um, understand China's role in their country, you know, and, and that's just a handful of conversations that I can think of. So um Absolutely. I think the Chinese church will for sure have an impact on the history of Christianity moving forward. So, so Hannah, I have a, a follow-up question to that. Um, but before I want to ask you a very quick one, um, like on the ground, if, if I go to China right now, and I know the country's huge and it's different in different spots and I, and I stand out there and I have a Bible and I say, repent, turn to Jesus, the, the, you know, the kingdom talk of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. And then also if just a local Chinese Christian person, are they going to go out and they could say, Hey, you guys come to my house this Sunday, we're going to read the book of John. So just real quick, are they going to get, is there going to be persecution there? Is, is it, are they a little bit afraid? Would they not do that? Or like what? Oh boy. Um, if you went you probably wouldn't have anyone interfering with you. Um, and maybe eventually if you were, you know, drawing a huge crowd, someone would come along and be like, Hey dude, just maybe stop that. But I don't think you'd be like, <laughs> you know, they're not going to take you in and, and question you or anything. Um, 
for a Chinese national, it, it really depends on the context and what's taking place in that particular city. A lot of people talk, you know, China, China, <laughs> China is such a big place, you know, it's, it's a huge place and, and it's really hard to understand how big it is unless you've been there. <laughs> um, part of it is just remembering that, you know, China is like bigger than all of Europe, you know? So it's kind of like, even if you're talking about one place, the exact opposite can be true a hundred miles away yeah. in, in another province. Right. So uh, I would say in general for your average Chinese Christian, um, they are probably, you know, if they went out and they were on the street corner with the gospel of John, I don't know that they would face immediate repercussion. Um, usually it has more to do with groups of people. Um, and I mean, a lot of the persecution in China really has to do with the church rather mm -hmm. than individual Christians. Mm -hmm. um, religious belief is not illegal in China, but uh community, you know, gathering as a community that is not in submission to regulations on religious life, that is very much illegal. Right. Um, so, you know, if there was an individual with the gospel of John out there preaching, it just very much depend on, on the local things. But I if you had, it. but if you had a church, if you had, you know, 50 people out on the streets saying, hey, we're a church and we're gonna preach to you, come join us in our group. That would definitely pretty quickly uh, draw some attention. That makes sense. I um, just, we're, we're getting close to the end here. I'm gonna throw a question out and then after you all, I'll give the last question to David there. But um, for better or worse, right or wrong, what do the, what do like Chinese Christians think of us in the West? Are they like, we're cowards, we're bending, um, and, and what, like, what can we learn from them? Like, you know how, like every mm. sort of tradition has great emphasis, like Luther is like faith and simultaneously Saint Sinner and, you know, and Kuiper is all of life redeemed, or, you know, mm. everyone's got kind of a different, a great mm -hmm. thing. What, what do you see, even it could just be your whole, like, just for you personally, or, or what have you noticed, man, like, this is a great thing or theme that we Christians could pick up. And then, yeah, the first part is what, what do they think of us? And it could yeah. be bad too, because I wouldn't be surprised if it was. It's both. Um... Oh man, <laughs> I knew it, but it still hurts. <laughs> They have a lot of love for us. I mean, they are very aware of the history of missions in their country, and they're generally very grateful for uh, missionary activity over the centuries. Um, they're very grateful for what they believe and, you know, see as the sacrifices that the Western church made to bring the gospel to them. They are also, I think, very aware that um, we are struggling. Mm. Um, they pray for us pretty regularly. I, I often hear from uh, Chinese churches and Chinese believers that they are praying for us. I think a lot of our particular problems often feel confusing to them um, and maybe a little hard to 
parse out and, and understand. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I, I think they look at us and they definitely think we need to be refined. Mm-hmm. Um, I was giving <laughs> a talk, um, in a large setting with a Chinese sister. She has spent time in jail herself. Um, she lives in the U S now. And, um, someone asked this question, someone said to her, you know, asked from the audience, you know, what do you have to say to us in the West? And she very point blankly told them, I think that um, the American church needs to face persecution in order to be purified and refined. Mm-hmm. Now you can imagine how that went over yeah. in that, in that room, but, um, they don't say that with malice, you know, they don't say that out of a kind of like, oh, you guys have, you know, you deserve this. It's, it's really more of a sense of they really look at their experience with it and, and, and they don't, you know, they're not, uh, masochists. They're not looking for persecution. They don't want it, but they very much look at it and testify to the good work that God does in the church when it arrives. And I think that they look at the American church and are just inability to understand how God works in suffering. And they kind of say, you got, you got to learn this. (laughs) You you gotta, you gotta like actually be able to face um, trials and know how to walk with Christ through those trials and, and love the Lord through those trials. So so I think to, to the second part of your question, you know, what, you know, what are kind of their distinctives or, or what is the, the primary thing we can take away from them? I think, you know, just being crystal clear on where your allegiances lie wow. as part of the kingdom of God, um, that Christ is the ascended risen Lord and that um, you have to be very clear on where the allegiances of your heart are, um, both in, you know, big, big picture in a big picture sense when it comes to things like, you know, states and powers and authorities, but also on, on a small sense when it comes to, um, your personal life. But I also think the second thing is just, um, they really understand, uh, how a reliance on the Holy spirit enables you to withstand life and, they're very much a praying church, um, very much reliant on the word. A lot of the just very basic, very simple, um, you know, fruits of the spirit and parts of, you know, the life of being a Christian are, are things that they, they really hold on to and, um, prayer, especially they, they are deeply, deeply committed to prayer and, uh, life of prayer, both as individuals and corporately as the church. Awesome. Thank you, Hannah. I, as I mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation, I can I can tell that you've fallen in love with the people of China, and I and I know I know what it's like to fall in love with an entire country because I have a similar relationship with Christians in Brazil. Mm. My, my, my first book was translated into into Portuguese in, in twenty fourteen, and I've I've made all sorts of connections with people in Brazil, and I haven't met. A single Brazilian that I didn't absolutely love, you know. So it's, it's I, I I can understand that, but I also think you know when I I, I see 
the church in a similar way, just in the last 30 or 40 years, has has expanded exponentially in mm-hmm. Brazil in ways that, mm-hmm. that are, are yeah. hard to imagine. And I can, I can see this has happened in China as well. And I don't know about you, but I feel as though I wish some of this would come back to us. Oh yeah. I wish we could yes. we could get people from China and Brazil Brazil coming to Canada, the United States, you know, and and yeah. and, and revivifying the churches in our countries. Yes. And that, yeah. that's what I really pray for. That's what I would really love to see. Yeah. Oh, you're you're <laughs> you're speaking <laughs> to my heart. I mean, that's that's everything that my work is about is essentially trying to help people understand that you know, we're not alone that, you know, the, the, I think so much of the conversations that we have right now, anticipating increased hardship as the church in the Western world are, are so isolated from the realities of churches that have endured very well outside of the Western world. And, um, you know, I just think we, it, it would behoove us to, to really adopt, uh, a posture of listening to what they have to say to us, because exactly. I mean, um, we aren't alone. God put us in a global body (laughs) for a reason. And um, the more that we recognize their strengths and how, you know, every part of the body is necessary and where we are weak, they are strong and where they are weak, God has given us strengths. And um, the more that we, take time to seek each other out and engage each other and learn from each other. I think the stronger the church globally will be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, We've been talking with Hannah nation. She's the managing director of the center for house church theology. And kind of like she was saying there, um, she, she's not necessarily translating theological material from English to Mandarin and giving to them. She's, she's like, corresponding coming back to us and what a very specific and super awesome calling i think i just read an article from you last night like on the gospel coalition said like yeah read luther and calvin but you have there's more connection with um the christians in china you know like that closer to home to us and and it's just so healthy for us to return to the church fathers return to the reformers but now we need to a regular pit stop, like what's happening mm. in Brazil, what's happening mm. in China, what's happening mm. in Sudan. So we thank you for that. And then also David Koisis, um, he's with Global Global Scholars Canada, also um, an author. We thank, I uh, thank you, David, thanks for uh, jumping in, co-hosting today. We'll have you again down the road, of course. And Hannah, sister, thank you. Thank you so much for your work. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Mm-hmm.